Welcome. Welcome in to Sports Talk Chicago. All gas, no brakes. If you're looking for the same old sports talk, get out. You've come to the wrong place. Hey, we ain't come this far just to come this far, you hear me? I tell you what I see, I tell you the truth. We going hard today. We're fearless, bold, and highly opinionated. This here show. This show is so hot right now. The biggest guests, the hottest takes, and the best interviews live right here. Do you actually remind me of Dan Patrick? Because you ask great questions, you have the knack, you have the gift. On Sports Talk Chicago. Yo, Chicago. Here's your host. The guy's an absolute stud. John Zagul. Hello, everybody. Welcome into Sports Talk Chicago. Great to see you all to be here with us across our TV and radio affiliates across Chicagoland. We are so glad to be back here with you. We're live on YouTube as well. We're on WKAN 105.5, the ticket, HCTV, Cities 92.9, Talk FM, WJOB, TV, and our new affiliate, 98.3, The Life, up in Round Lake Beach. So great to be with them. Great to have them as a part of our new um, affiliates here. We have seven now in total. And uh, give them a warm welcome. A new audience up in Northern Illinois. Great to be a part of things with them. You can follow us all over at Sports Talk Chicago. Subscribe to the YouTube channel, Sports Talk Chicago. Give us a like over there. And uh, we have a huge guest joining us here. Two segments. So much to discuss. Bulls, Bears, Chicago sports. He's also one of the play-by-play guys for the Chicago Bulls. So we have a lot to discuss there, too. Great friend of this program. Sports reporter at ABC7, of course. Host of the Give Me the Hot Sauce podcast. And one of the play-by-play voices of Bulls basketball. Please welcome Mark Shinowski to the program. Mark, it's always a pleasure. How are you? I'm doing great, John. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, it's great to have you here. We have so much to discuss. The Bulls have made some... National headlines as of late with the Ring of Honor ceremony. I did want to start with that, get your take. Um, what did you think of the ceremony itself, first off? Well, it's very unfortunate that the three biggest stars of that 95-96 team, Michael, Scotty, and Rodman, couldn't make it uh, to the United Center for the ceremony. And that was a, a big detriment right away. And then, of course, the unfortunate booing. Uh, of Jerry Krause when his uh, picture was displayed on the audio screen at the, or the video screen at the United Center was was so sad and obviously it was a majority uh, it was a minority of the crowd that was doing the booing but it really detracted from what was supposed to be a celebration of the first ring of honor you know I thought it was a really good concept very well thought of by Michael Reinsdorf and the Bulls management team to to honor some of the great names of the past because it wasn't just the championship era. They also honored some players from the 70s and even before that, some of the founding players of the Bulls franchise. So, you know, something they're planning to do every two years. Uh, it's supposed to be a celebration of basketball as Chicago is one of the great basketball cities in America. And unfortunately, afterwards, the only thing that was talked about, especially on a national level, was the unfortunate booing of Jerry Krause. What did you think about the booing personally when you heard it and saw it play out? Well, you know that throughout the time of the Bulls dynasty era, Jerry Krause was a polarizing figure. I think uh, a lot of Bulls fans recognized him for the great job he did in building two different teams that uh, were able to three-peat. But his personality was abrasive at times and, and turned off some fans and members of the media where you know he didn't always get a favorable uh treatment in terms of comments on the air and in print. So during that time, as I mentioned, he was very, a very polarizing figure. But when you look back over the, the entirety of what he did during his time as general manager, he was enormously successful. He was inducted into the Basketball Hall of Fame for the great work that he did. And you would think that, you know, 20, what is it now, 25 years after the last championship, that people would 
celebrate what he did instead of choosing to boo. And, you know, the unfortunate thing was the way the ceremony was done, people didn't know that his widow was in attendance. And the first thing they saw was his image on the video screen. And then the horrifying shot of his wife just reduced to tears, uh, seeing the way her husband, who had been dead for seven years, was treated. It was just just a, such a sad sad scene in what was supposed to be a celebration of basketball. That's a great way you put it, too. I mean, certainly a celebration. Uh, how we put together two different teams, as you said, that went and won three-peats uh, in different eras in terms of uh, the NBA, uh, to have his legacy, if you will, be reduced to that is very unfortunate because he was highly successful, and in a Ring of Honor ceremony, you're celebrating that success. He was the architect of all those teams, and now after all this time, uh, that's the only treatment he gets. That's pretty unfortunate. And I think the thing that really is, is sad is that a lot of the people who are booing probably know nothing of Jerry Krause firsthand. Younger fans may not have even uh, been around or been able to appreciate basketball back in the 90s. And then there were some fans who are more casual fans that all they know of Jerry Krause in that era are what they saw on the Last Dance documentary, which, of course, was a Michael Jordan vehicle designed to, you know, glorify Jordan for what he did. And he deserves, of course, the bulk of the credit for those championships. But it that the whole championship era was viewed through Michael Jordan's perspective. And, you know, he didn't treat Jerry Krause or Scottie Pippen very well in that documentary. And I think that for some fans who were booing Krause, their only knowledge about Jerry was what they saw on that documentary. What was your knowledge of Jerry Krause? You covered the team in the 90s, and you've been around Chicago media for a long time. What was your experience with him? Well, I, I got to know Jerry not extremely well, but I covered that team, as you mentioned, throughout the 90s. And Jerry, has, uh, it's, no, it's no secret that he wanted to keep everything close to the vest. He was not much uh, for sharing any information with the media, especially when it came to potential draft picks or free agent options. He always felt like it was to his advantage to keep everything a secret, even to the point where he would go into gyms to scout college players and later high school players when, when they became eligible for the draft. You know, he didn't want to be seen. He would sit in some far corner of the gym and, and not talk to anyone. And he didn't even want to acknowledge that he may have been in, in a gym on a certain date to see a certain player. You know, that led to him trying to get Scottie Pippen out of central Arkansas where you know, the word started to come out that, that Scottie Pippen was a first-round prospect. And as that draft got closer, there were a number of NBA teams that were interested in Pippen. But Jerry thought that he was the first one in on Scottie and wanted to, and wanted to try to keep him from the rest of the NBA universe, which, of course, was impossible. Even, you know, going back to 1987, we didn't have the Internet and, and you know, some of the things that we have now. But still, there were a lot of NBA teams that knew about Scottie Pippen. But he did a great job in terms of building that team around the edges. You know, he was able to recruit uh, Tony Kukoc to come over from Europe. Again, a lot of NBA teams knew about Kukoc, but Kraus put in a lot of time to make sure that the Bulls were number one on his list. He drafted him with an early second round pick when a lot of teams weren't investing draft capital on European prospects that they didn't know if they'd ever come over and play here in the States. And then when you look at some of the guys that he added over the years, you know, guys like uh, Brian Williams, who was important in that second three-peat, and, and some of the uh, veteran centers he brought in. He added Robert Parrish and John Sally, uh, James Edwards. He brought in Trent Tucker and Bobby Hansen. you know, guys that maybe didn't play big roles, 
but were important in terms of rounding out the roster, helping to create competition in practice, and making sure that if there was going to be an injury to the starting lineup, they were going to have they were going to have some depth behind him. Heck, he was able to get my buddy Stacy King in that '89 draft with the right. uh, with the sixth overall pick, and the Bulls, of course, had already been a playoff team up till then. But in that '89 draft, he had three first round picks, so you know, he was always looking at ways to improve the middle and the back of the roster, and that's one of the things that allowed the Bulls to sustain their greatness for as long as they were able to do. Mark Janowski here with us on Sports Talk Chicago. Mark, do you think? Based on public reaction, I think I know the answer to this, but I'm asking you personally, what's bigger for Jerry Krause's legacy, the six championships, or the way he kind of dismantled the team after 1998? Well, I think Jerry Krause gets kind of a bad rap in terms of dismantling the team. I I think that was a decision that was made in concert with ownership. You know, I think they looked at what it would cost to try to keep that team together, and I think the decision was made at both an ownership and management level that it was going to be cost prohibitive to try to continue on with that group of veteran stars. Remember at the end of the, uh, the Bulls dynasty, Jordan was paid about $35 million a season, which was incredibly high at that point in NBA history. Uh, Pippen was looking for a new contract. You had guys like Steve Kerr and Luke Longley who were up for new deals. And then they would have to pay top of the line salary to try to bring Phil Jackson back as coach. So all those factors contributed to the decision to move on. And I think Krauss went to ownership with an idea that if we tear it down, I can go out and get big time free agents coupled with draft picks and we can be back in a contending status in, in, in a couple of years. As we all know, they had money to, to spend in, in 2000. They went after guys like Tim Duncan and Tracy McGrady and it didn't work out. They didn't want to come to Chicago and he ended up with guys that were uh, on the lesser end of the, of the NBA star scale. So, you know, it wasn't it wasn't just this unilateral decision by Jerry Krause to say, well, I, I, I can just tear it down and, and build it build it up immediately. He went to ownership. And I think that they looked at the, what it was going to cost to keep the team together. And I think all those factors, when you merge them all, the decision was made that that we're going to start over. It did not work. You know, and when we look back on it in, in, with the with the benefit of time. It was the wrong decision. But at the time. You know, you, you can understand some of the thinking that went into it, uh, although, as, as it turned out, it turned out to be a, a bad decision on, on the part of the Bulls organization. But I do believe, and correct me if I'm wrong, Mark, too, Cross was still around in the early 2000s, so even though it didn't work at that point, people like Ben Gordon and Lou Aldang, Kirk Heinrich, those baby Bulls, that, that sort of Bulls era, a lot of that was even somewhat architect or somewhat put together by Krauss as well. So even on the back end before his time at Chicago uh, ran out, it ended up kind of working. It just didn't work at that time. And there was so much uh, a public eye on the teardown that we didn't get to appreciate maybe the end result of how things emerged from it. Of course, John, you're so young. You were probably just, uh, you know, in kindergarten or something in the <laughs> early 2000s. But uh, no, actually, John Paxson was the one who built mm. those teams. Krauss left in, I believe, 2002, and the, the thing that was so tragic for, the, for their attempts to rebuild, you know, they had high draft picks very early on. They drafted Elton Brand number one in 99, but then they, they traded him for the opportunity to pair the two high school kids, Eddie Curry and Tyson Chandler. And then they drafted Jay Williams number two overall out of Duke. I believe that was in 01 or 02. Oh, two, I think it was. So that was going to be the foundation of the next team that they thought could be competitive. 
Well, then Jay Williams had that horrible motorcycle accident. And his career was over after one year. And then John Paxson, who just took over, had to make a decision on which way to go. Because of the, the accident to Jay Williams, all of a sudden they needed a point guard. And that accident happened right before the draft. So they ended up not trying to move up to get Dwayne Wade and, and took Kirk Heinrich at seven in the, in the 2003 draft. And a lot of people thought that, you know, Pax being a rookie GM made a mistake. Well, because of the motorcycle accident, he needed a point guard. So they weren't going to mortgage a bunch of, of assets to try to move up and get Wade. Had Wade slipped to seven, they would have taken him. But because Miami took him at five, they thought, well, we need a point guard anyway. We'll take Kirk Heinrich. And as, as everybody knows, Kirk Heinrich had a very, very good career. It's just that, you know, Bulls fans look back on it and think, oh, man, we could have had Dwayne Wade. And that, and those were circumstances. A lot of that was, was out of their control. People thought Miami was going to take a big man at five. Chris Kamen was the guy. They ended up taking Wade because he had a couple of great workouts. And so, you know, a lot of people thought Pac screwed up. But, there, again, there were a lot of circumstances involved that led to Miami taking Wade at five and the Bulls taking Heinrich at seven. Yeah, that's a great point. And that whole draft class, from what I recall, was quite impressive. I mean, as you mentioned, Chris oh, yeah. was in there, Kirk Heinrich, Dwayne Wade, uh, Carmelo Anthony, right? There were, there were a lot of good players in that draft class, and I would say that Kirk Heinrich, as you said, certainly had a good career in Chicago, and overall, that was not uh, a bust of a pick, if you will. Yeah, the guy number one, LeBron James, is pretty right. good, too. <laughs> he happened to be there as well, right? <laughs> yeah, he was, he was okay. And he's still playing, which is amazing. And he's right. playing at an incredibly high level. <laughs> Mark Janowski here with us on Sports Talk Chicago. Mark, let's talk current Bulls. They started off really slow. They've turned it on as of late. What's your take on their season so far? It's really been a, a case of two quarters. We're at the halfway point. First quarter, they really struggled. They struggled to shoot the ball both from two and three-point range. Um, you know, they, they just really couldn't get it together. Their, their big three of uh, Zach, Damar, and Booch were all shooting at career-low numbers, and, you know, nothing was really kind of working. Billy Donovan wanted to tweak their style and wanted to play at a faster pace and shoot more threes, and it just wasn't working. And then Zach went out with the foot injury, which coincided at the same point with the team starting to find some kind of rhythm with their offense, you know, moving at a faster pace, getting better uh, percentages from the three-point range, and they started winning games. And again, fans immediately jumped to the conclusion that they're better without Zach, and that's not necessarily the case. It was just a question of, you know, they started to, you know, their regression to the mean. This was like a, an ascension to the mean. They started getting back to what their career numbers were like, and they started winning games. Um, they're 14-9 and nine in their last 23. They've played much better basketball. Now they've got a half a season to go, and We'll find out whether or not they can continue that momentum to become a playoff team or if they'll start to slide a little bit and, and fight just to get in the play-in. The trade deadline is three weeks from tomorrow, and we'll see if they if they are going to make any major moves or, there are, or if this hot streak they've had over the last month and a half will lead the front office to decide, let's just keep the, what we've got and see if we can get into the playoffs this year. What's your inclination on that right now? Do you see them making a major move, or do you think at this point they're going to go with what they have? Boy, it's really hard to tell. You know, we talked about Jerry Krause being secretive, and Arturus <laughs> Karnaschovas is very much in that same vein. He does not share much with the media or really uh, anybody, even guys that are, that are really close uh, to the organization. I think that they have explored the trade market for Zach Levine We've heard various experts around the NBA like 
Adrian Wojnarowski and Shams Charania say that there really has not been an aggressive market out there for Zach Levine. We saw today there was a trade for Pascal Siakam, who, along with Zach, were the two guys that were continually mentioned as being available, all-star caliber players. And the Raptors got a really good haul in terms of, you know, not maybe not the players they got back, but they got three first-round draft picks for a guy who's going to be a free agent this summer that they were not planning to re-sign. So credit to Masai Ujiri for working that deal. And I also like it, like it from Indiana's perspective because what we're hearing is that Siakam is amenable to re-signing with the Pacers and teaming with uh, Tyrese Halliburton long-term. So that could work out to be a, a good trade for both teams. But in terms of the Bulls situation, I, I think the, the, the contract for Levine is a little bit onerous for a lot of teams. He's got three more years after this one that the money just keeps ascending to where it's almost $50 million at the end of that contract. And although Levine is a two-time All-Star who is a proven elite scorer in this league, some teams just aren't willing to commit to that many years and that kind of salary for a guy who is not affected winning at a high level. I think they may have more luck trying to move DeRozan before the deadline because his is an expiring contract. He's still a very productive player. And if you don't have to give up a ton to get him, if you're a contending team, he might be able to move you up a couple of spots in the final playoff standings and maybe ultimately to go further in the playoffs than you might have expected. So I wouldn't be surprised if you see a trade of either DeRozan or Alex Caruso, but I think the Levine contract is going to be difficult to move. We have Mark Janowski here with us on Sports Talk Chicago. We're going to be right back. Don't go anywhere. More Bulls talk. we got Bears talk, and Mark's been calling play-by-play for the Bulls. I want to talk about that, too. So, so much more to come. Stay with us. Segment two coming up. It's Sports Talk Chicago. Sports Talk Chicago. Here with John Zaglou. Great to have all of you back here with us across our great affiliates, 98.3, the live WKAN, 105.5, the ticket, ACTV, JTV, WJOB, and Cities 92.9 Talk FM. I'm John Zaglou. John Meadows is directing and producing. Great to be back here with all of you. You can follow us all over at Sports Talk Chicago and hit us up on YouTube. Hit the like button. Subscribe to the channel at Sports Talk Chicago as well. Back with us for another segment. Great to have him still here with us. Uh, Mark Shinowski. Of course, uh, sports reporter at ABC7, host of the Give Me the Hot Sauce podcast with Stacey King, and one of the play-by-play voices of Bulls basketball on TV. So, Mark, we were talking about Bulls uh, at the end of last segment. We will continue here. Uh, the trade deadline's coming up. We discussed kind of Zach Levine and, and potentially DeMar DeRozan getting moved. I guess my question to that would be this. Let's say they move DeRozan, which you said could be more likely. How would that affect the Bulls in terms of their rest of the season outlook are they still going to be a playoff team if they were to trade DeRozan or is that a signal of they're going to kind of be sellers and maybe move down in those standings in the second half of the season well I think ownership and management have made it pretty clear that they do not want to descend towards the bottom of the east and go into a full-on rebuild I think any trades they make will be looked at to maybe you know recouping some of the draft capital that they have traded in both the Vucevic and DeRozan deals but also to maintain a competitive roster. You know, DeRozan's making about $25 million this season, and and you're going to have to take one or two players back in any trade that you make. So you're going to get some players back if you decide to trade DeMar. Caruso, of course, is making a lot less. He's only making about $9, $10 million. So, you know, that trade, you might try to get a first-round pick and then maybe just a contract salary filler to match the money. Uh, But if, if they do trade DeMar, I think they would be looking at trying to get back maybe a power forward so you could shift Patrick Williams to the three where I think he'd be more effective and maybe have more size. 
we've seen throughout the first half of the season and really since Billy Donovan's been here, he likes to go with the small lineup with one center and three or four guards. And sometimes that hurts you uh, both on defense and on the rebounding angle. And I think that if they do trade DeMar, maybe you bring back some size where you could have a different looking lineup. You know, a lot of people have talked about a potential Zach Levine trade to the Lakers and they're talking about, you know, D'Angelo Russell coming back. Well, that to me, that makes no sense because Kobe White has emerged this year as, as a bona fide top level point guard. If you brought D'Angelo Russell in to steal minutes away from Kobe, you're just going to limit, you know, his continued development. So I think that would be a non-starter. If you traded DeRozan to the Lakers, he's from L.A. He's had some interest in going there in the past. Maybe you get back Rui Hachimura and Jared Vanderbilt. The money's kind of this would match up pretty well. That would give you two guys that can play the power forward position. And I think that you'd have a, a more athletic team, a team that could play at this faster pace that Billy Donovan's talked about. And I think it's a trade that could potentially work out for both teams because as long as LeBron is in is in L.A. still playing basketball, he's going to try to win championships. And I think he would be thrilled to add a guy like DeMar DeRozan to their squad. You also make a great point about D'Angelo Russell and Kobe White. And, I mean, how do you, how do you explain what Kobe White's done this year? Because, I mean, for me, I don't think anybody expected this production for, from him, right? So how do you explain Kobe White's ascension here this season for the Bulls? Well, it's really a testament to his hard work. You know, he came into the league after one year in North Carolina at 19 years old, very inexperienced. <laughs> and then we had the Lonzo Ball injury, and immediately it was like, well, can Kobe White replace Lonzo Ball? And that was a tough comparison for him because Ball in his half season with the Bulls was just through the roof outstanding. So it's hard for anybody to come in and pick up right where Ball left off. But to Kobe's credit, you know, a couple of his weaknesses – he didn't, he didn't have a good handle. You know, he was, he was a little bit turnover prone, and he wasn't very good at finishing at the rim. He'd get shots blocked, or he, he would miss shots from close range. He worked extremely hard in both areas. He went to a private coach these last two summers who just drilled him day after day, tightening up his handle, you know, getting him uh, more confident in finishing a, over taller defenders with floaters and shooting the ball from different angles. And he's become a completely different player on the offensive end. He's also become more of a leader. I don't know if you've noticed, you see it some of the timeouts. It's Kobe White, who's very vocal and, and you know, exhorting guys that, you know, this is where you got to go. You got to do this on offense, this on defense. And, he, and he's still only 23, but, he, but he's a guy that's not afraid to take on that leadership role. And he's made enormous strides. And I think that's what gives the Bulls front office, you know, the confidence to maybe go out and trade for veteran pieces rather than trying to complete rebuild because they've got a young point guard who's under contract for two more years after this at a very team friendly level. You know, they'll have to get Patrick Williams re-signed, but you know, they've got, they've got the makings of, of a shell of a team with Zach Levine still only being 28, 29 years old that, you know, they, they've got, you know, three starters in place. It's a question of what can they do to get more athleticism and maybe more size around those guys. What's your expectation for the Bulls for the rest of this season? Then moving forward with Rosen's contract being up, Levine still being under contract. You mentioned Patrick Williams may need to get re-signed. I mean, what's the end game here for this specific group of guys? Well, you know, with DeRozan, he's in his 15th season, and he'll turn 35 before the start of next year. So you really have to wonder. I mean, he's been incredible since he's come to Chicago. He's played at an all-star level. His shooting percentage is down a little bit this year, but he's still averaging 22 points a game. 
he's been fantastic with the younger guys in terms of being a leader. But, if, you know, they, we've seen it reported from all the beat guys that the Bulls and DeRozan's camp are far apart on a contract extension. You'd hate to see him walk away and go to the Lakers or some other contending team for nothing. And, you know, we, we've seen that in the past with different guys, whether it was Joakim Noah or Pau Gasol. You know, guys just, just walking out and you get nothing back for, for an all-star caliber player. So if, if they can't bridge the gap in terms of an, an extension that works for both sides, I think it's almost incumbent on them to try to work out a trade where DeMar can go to a contending situation that would make him happy and the Bulls can get some assets back that would help them stay competitive both now and into the future. If Kobe White continues to improve, they do have their first-round draft pick this year. Uh, you know, I'm not saying that they're on the verge of contending for a title, but they're certainly not ready to fall to the bottom of the East either. So, you know, a lot of people will tell you the worst thing to be is in between. You know, you hate to be that 7-8 seed where you don't get a great draft pick, and but you don't have a chance to win the championship. Unfortunately, that's where the Bulls are now. And, you know, unless unless you uh, win the lottery or, or get a trade that really works out big time in your favor, it's going to be hard to get from – where they are now to being one of the top four teams in the East. Mark Janowski here with us on Sports Talk Chicago. John's Glue, John Beto's directing and producing. Mark, let's get to some Bears talk now. Lots of stuff's been going on. Um, what's your take on the Bears' decision to retain Matt Eberplus and fire Luke Getze? I kind of expected that that w- would be the case. Uh, I know that there's a lot of respect for Matt Eberplus among the players in the locker room. I also know that Ryan Poles uh, spoke glowingly about the job Eberflus has done despite the win-loss record. And, of course, they finished well. You know, they won six of the last eight, and or maybe it was five of the last eight. And then they, you know, they showed a lot of improvement, especially on the defensive end, with Eberflus taking over as the de facto defensive coordinator. That side of the ball, they really improved a lot. They were among the league leaders in tape, takeaways over the second half of the season. So I, I fully expected that Eberflus would be retained. And the key is going to be to get it right with the offensive coordinator. You know, a lot of people said that uh, this would be the third offensive coordinator in four years for Justin Fields. But, of course, that's the next question. We don't know if Justin Fields is going to be back. They need to improve on that side of the ball. And I think that the first step is getting in a creative, forward-thinking offensive coordinator who can utilize his players' strengths and not be kind of tied to his lineup, you know, his play card. Uh, obviously, Luke Getze was the quarterback coach in Green Bay with Aaron Rodgers. He was working with a superstar quarterback who made it look easy at times. And I think maybe that influenced some of his thoughts in working with the young quarterback because uh, I thought Getze kind of put the shackles on fields for a lot of the last two seasons where there weren't many downfield throws called, even though I think that's one of Fields' strengths. You know, they had a lot of sideways passes, uh, a lot of design runs for the quarterback where Fields was taking a lot of big hits. Um, Justin has his has faults as well. You know, he's not the best at making secondary reads and, and getting rid of the ball when there's nothing there. He took a lot of sacks. That did improve over the last half of the season. So, you know, tough decision for Ryan Poles. Do you stick with Fields or do you draft a guy that many consider a generational prospect in Caleb Williams? Um, you know, I'm sure he's going to be getting a ton of phone calls from quarterback needy teams with all kinds of offers for that number one pick. And at the end of the day, he did mention in his end-of-the-year press conference he may take it into April before he decides whether or not he's going to trade that number one pick and keep Fields or he's going to use it on a quarterback. So based on what you've seen from Fields, in addition to the language coming out about Caleb Williams, how do you think the Bears should approach this situation? 
Well, I think because of the prospective draft haul that they could get in a trade for the number one pick and the fact that, that Fields has some unique talents in terms of his athleticism, my personal opinion, this is just me, I would keep Fields, continue to develop him with a new coordinator and an offensive system designed around him, then I would take that number one pick and trade it. You might be able to get three number ones, a couple of number twos, and then you could get another wide receiver. You could solidify that offensive line that's been very shaky at times. You could get another edge pass rusher, and I think you could have a team that next season would be in position to compete with Detroit and Green Bay for the NFC North division. I think you could turn it around that quickly if you make that trade. If you bring in Caleb Williams and he turns out to be good but not great, then you've missed on the opportunity to maybe add five starting caliber players in the next couple of drafts. I do like that perspective, actually, the way you kind of put it with the, with the first-round picks. Um, in terms of next year overall, uh, depending on what the Bears do with that number one pick, I would assume, and correct me if I'm wrong on your perspective, that playoffs should be on the table no matter what, considering they've decided to retain Aberflus and Poles are still at the helm as well. Well, you look at the way it's gone this year, uh, you know, it doesn't take all that much to make the expanded playoffs. Green Bay got in at 9-8, and eight, and then, of course, they shocked the world by just destroying the Cowboys <laughs> in Dallas the other day, which was really a shocker to me. And, you know, you see teams in the other conference making it at 9-8. and eight. So you, you don't have to, you know, the jump from the Bears from 7-10 and 10 to 9-8, and eight, you're not asking a whole lot. You're, you're looking to win two more games. Uh, Detroit looks like a team I think has got some staying power. Uh, Dan Campbell, who the nation got to know through the Hard Knock series a couple of years ago, has done a tremendous job instilling confidence in that young team. And I think Detroit will be a team to be reckoned with. Green Bay, you know, Jordan Love, is, is, it's a small sample size. He's played really well. I don't know that we can say he's the next in the great line of Green Bay quarterbacks, but I think they're going to be a team to be reckoned with. And the Vikings could be could be a team that's going into rebuild mode with Kirk Cousins, a free agent, and, and they kind of took a step back this year. I think the Bears, if they play their cards right with the draft, and don't forget they have a lot of cap space, they could also add some impact players in free agency. I think they should be in a situation where if they can't wrestle the division away from Detroit, I think they'd have a chance to compete for a playoff spot next season. Mark Janowski still here with us on Sports Talk Chicago. A few more questions here for you, Mark, before we finish up and let you go. You're calling a ton of Bulls play-by-play this year. We've talked at length in past episodes of this program about your desire to call play-by-play. You've done great. Um, you call Windy City Bulls as well, obviously. Uh, just tell me about that transition for you into getting more play-by-play assignments and knocking them out of the park. Well, thank you for the kind words. It's, it's really been a blessing. Uh, when I got into this business – I did want to be an NBA play-by-play broadcaster, but those jobs are few and far between. And at that point, there wasn't really a minor league system where you could get involved, you know, trying to work your way up uh, by doing what was first the CBA, then the D League, and now, of course, it's called the G League. But, you know, it's just been a, a unique set of circumstances that have given me this opportunity. And I'm very grateful to the Bulls for, you know, for giving an old guy a shot at doing something new. Uh, it's been it's been so much fun working with Stacy, who I have a great relationship. You know, I covered him as a player. We got to know each other. We did we did a season of pre and post before he was brought onto the broadcast team. And then, of course, we do the podcast together, which we've done for three years now. We have a great time doing it. So I hope that some of that chemistry comes across on the air during the broadcast. And the Bulls have been very kind to me and, and giving me more opportunities. And uh, obviously, with Adam's schedule. He has to be in whatever NFL city 
that he's going to call a game in on Saturday for production meetings. And the Bulls have had games almost every Saturday. So they, they had a need for someone to fill in. And with uh, Jason Benetti leaving the organization, uh, that opportunity was, was available. And I was uh, so thankful that I got the chance to do those games. Uh, Adam will probably take it the rest of the way, but as they know, I'm only a phone call away if they need me. I was asked this by somebody on Twitter, so I have to ask you this, because you mentioned Jason Benetti walking away. Is there any interest for you in the White Sox play-by-play job? Um, I have never done baseball play-by-play, and I know the White Sox are looking for a top-level play-by-play voice, so I am not a candidate for that position. But thank you for the asking. I appreciate the question. Well, because I remember, you know, you did uh, pre and post for the White Sox and WGN there uh, for a time, which obviously right. also sounded great. So I did I did want to put that out there because I was a-, a couple of people actually asked me about it and said, hey, will you ask Mark this? And maybe we could break some news. I don't know. But we, we now know that you are not in contention for that. That's totally okay. And then what about the Windy City Bulls, too? Um, obviously a great production you guys have over there. Uh, you're recruiting people from the Bulls uh, pre and post game show to come on out with you. I think that's amazing. I know some of the games air on NBC Sports Chicago. So how's that been this year as well? It's been a lot of fun. Uh, NBC Sports Chicago is doing eight games live. And on those eight games, I've either got Kendall Gill or Will Purdue to join me to provide the analysis. And then the other games are streamed either on ESPN Plus or the GLeague.com site. And, and, you know, that gives the opportunity for fans who, who want to cover it uh, to watch it. You know, in today's age, everything's available. It's just a question of <laughs> how determined you are to find it. And, you know, the NBA G League side, is, it's still a, the same quality broadcast. It's just you're watching it on your, your computer or your phone rather than watching it on your television set. So just uh, want to let everybody know that all the home games are available. Uh, you just have to search it out if it's not on NBC Sports Chicago. But we've had a lot of fun doing it. Julian Phillips has played a number of games, and I think that the Bulls, like a lot of organizations, have been forward-thinking and giving some of their young guys who aren't aren't in the rotation the opportunity to play meaningful minutes at the G League level and develop their skills. It's helped with Dale and Terry, and I know, I know it's helping with Julian Phillips. And the young guy from Connecticut, Adama Sinogo, he's been a monster. He's had two straight games of over 30 points and 10 rebounds. He's a little bit undersized. They list him at 6'9", might be closer to 6'8", but, you know, he's got a big heart. And I was surprised when uh, Vooch was hurt that they didn't give him a chance to back up Drummond. But I guess uh, Billy wanted to go with experience rather than give the rookie a shot. To give me the hot sauce podcast is also super successful. And I saw the score put out something about it. You guys are still with Odyssey. Great partnership there. Um, how has that progressed from when you guys started, which I remember, to where it is today? You know, it's been funny. I've learned a lot about podcasting over the last three years. <laughs> One thing that I, that I learned is there's too many of them out there. I mean, you know, everybody everybody does a great job, I'm sure, and they're, they're all, you know, hoping to make it big. But there's just too much clutter out there. You know, for any team that you cover, you could probably find 10 or 12 different podcasts, especially in a market as big as Chicago. So we're fighting a good fight, and we're trying to reach more people. But, you know, we've had a tough time getting getting those overall numbers to grow. Uh, we'll – We'll keep at it. You know, I, I would tell your audience that Stacy's a great storyteller, and it's not just X's and O's about basketball. There's a lot of Stacy's personality that comes through in the show. And like this week, we're going to have John Sally on. John Sally also has a huge personality. So I think that's going to be a lot of fun. That show is tomorrow 
It's live on YouTube at 5.30, and then you can. it's available on all the major podcast carriers the following morning, which would be Friday. So, you know, we're continuing to try to get big-name guests and try trying to grow the show. Um, it's just uh, it's, it's just tough with so many podcasts out there. But, you know, our, our intention is, is to keep going and, and hopefully find new viewers and uh, new subscribers out there. Well, that's great to hear. Uh, yeah, everybody, give me the Hot Sauce podcast all over. It's a great show. And, uh, Mark, I appreciate you joining me. It's always a pleasure to have you on. Great Bears analysis, great Bulls analysis, and we're looking forward to watching you um, on ABC7, of course, doing Bulls play-by-play, Windy City play-by-play, and uh, give me the Hot Sauce. Um, it's always a pleasure, my friend. I love having you on. Thank you so much. Well, John, thank you so much, and congratulations on the success of your show. I know that you're expanding to more and more stations. I know the show will continue to grow with your great work. Thank you so much, Mark. We're going to be right back here on Sports Talk Chicago. The Bears have interviewed six different offensive coordinator candidates. Who are they going to pick? We'll talk about it next. Hi, everybody. Welcome back. Sports Talk Chicago. John Zaglul, John Meadows directing and producing on all of our great affiliates, 98.3, The Life, WKAN, 105.5, The Ticket, ACTV, JNTBW, JOB, and Cities 92.9, Talk FM, Great interview with Mark Chanowski. He does play-by-play for the Chicago Bulls and the Windy City Bulls and is a sports reporter on ABC7 Chicago, also the host of the Give Me the Hot Sauce podcast. Mark is a great friend of this program. If you missed any part of that interview, go back and podcast at sportstalkchicago.com, any of the major podcast carriers. Remember, you can also watch it on YouTube. Hey, follow us, Sports Talk Chicago. Subscribe, like the videos that we post uh, Mark is just a wealth of information, and it was really fun to have him on here to discuss a wide range of things, not just Bulls basketball, though I know that's his specialty. He even got into some Bears stuff, which was really fun, and, uh, you know, great interview, great time with him. Um, we have a lot to get to here in our last segment, Bears football, Bears news, so many things happening. Uh, the Bears have interviewed six different people for their offensive coordinator opening because they're still accepting the fact that it was Luke Getze's fault for why they went 7-10 and 10 last year. Nevertheless, this is what they're doing. They're interviewing six different candidates, and there might even be more down the road. But as of today, there have been six. I want to give a quick breakdown of each of these candidates and talk about why or maybe why not the Bears should consider them. They, they've interviewed Thomas Brown, who's currently the Carolina Panthers' offensive coordinator, well, that didn't work with Bryce Young. Next, uh, Greg Roman, who's the former Ravens offensive coordinator. Now, Greg Roman's an interesting case and an interesting character. Now, Roman was there, and he was the offensive coordinator when Lamar Jackson put up his best year ever statistically, ran for 1,200 yards, uh, won the NFL MVP at a 13-2 record in 15 games. Lamar Jackson did a really good job under Roman. Roman knows how to work with running quarterbacks. Now, if they're going to bring him in because they intend on keeping Justin Fields and leaving it at that, so be it, I guess. That would be the best and most logical pairing. I mean, you can't get any better than that. So if Fields fails, even with Greg Roman, we got a big issue. Uh, Do I recommend the Bears hiring an offensive coordinator to cater to Justin Fields and then he turns out to be potentially an even further bust and then they have to get rid of Fields and they're stuck with Roman? Probably not, right? So... Hiring a coordinator specifically for Justin Fields is going to work if you plan on legitimately keeping him for the long haul. If you're just interviewing him for optics, if you're just interviewing him uh, for whatever reason, other than, okay, we're going to keep Justin Fields and stick with Roman, doesn't really make too much sense. Nevertheless, Roman's been interviewed. Shane Waldron, the Seattle Seahawks offensive coordinator, has been interviewed. Now, Obviously, Waldron um, helped resurrect Geno Smith into what he is today, and even Drew Locke was competitive 
under Waldron. Um, I don't know if that's going to be an, if that's going to be a perfect fit. I'm not 100 percent sure. I can't say that Waldron's the guy or not. I will say this though: Geno Smith is a pocket passing quarterback. Geno Smith did well and won Comeback Player of the Year for throwing for 4,000-plus yards and breaking Seattle's passing yard record. If Waldron's going to come in and coach up Caleb Williams, who is a pocket passer and is going to be a rookie, I see no issue with that. Because if he's able to help out Geno Smith, resurrect his career, why can't he help out a rookie being developed? Now, if they're going to bring in Waldron and try and fit Justin Fields into a box like Lucchetti did, it's not going to work. Clint Kubiak's an interesting name, and this one's pretty... Exciting. Kubiak is the current passing game coordinator for the San Francisco 49ers. As you may know, he's the son of Gary Kubiak, longtime NFL coach and certainly an offensive genius in his own right. Now, I want to read this bit here from NBC Sports Chicago. Read this quote. Kubiak took over as the 49ers passing game coordinator this season after Bobby Slowick left to become the Houston Texans offensive coordinator. Kubiak is thought of highly in league circles. He's seen as a cerebral offensive mind, much like his dad, Gary and has had some experience as a play caller after taking over duties down the stretch for the Denver Broncos last season. League evaluators view Kubiak as integral to Brock Purdy's superb season. This hire would be smart no matter what. This hire would be smart if they keep Justin Fields or if they draft Caleb Williams, no doubt about it. This is probably my favorite candidate of the entire bunch, except for Greg Roman assuming they keep Justin Fields, but that's a qualifier there. Clint Kubiak's going to work no matter who the quarterback is for this team come next year. Like it or not about Brock Purdy, the fact is the numbers he put up were unbelievably impressive, and you can't really deny that or argue with it. You could say he's a system quarterback, game manager, is only doing that because he's in that system. Well, so be it if he is. I want that coaching staff then if Brock Purdy's doing what he's doing in that system. If Brock Purdy's able to perform at that level with the coaches surrounding him, give me somebody from there, put him on the Bears, and have him work his abilities here. That's what I would want. So, Clint Kubiak, to me, is by far the strongest candidate. He's 36 years old. Young guy, comes from an unbelievably great coaching tree between his dad and, obviously, Kyle Shanahan. I think this would be the best choice for the Bears. Will they do it? Eh, probably not. But I think it's the great and the best choice, and I, I hope that they seriously consider him. Two other candidates the Bears have interviewed are Greg Olson, not, no, not the tight end, uh, the Seattle Seahawks quarterbacks coach, the current quarterbacks coach. He's been around for a long time. He's been an offensive coordinator for the Detroit Lions, the Rams, the Bucks, the Raiders, the Jaguars, and the Raiders again. If you want somebody with a wealth of experience, that's great. And I don't actually um, condemn this idea. If they hired Greg Olson, I wouldn't be in an uproar. I know he's older and he's been around the block a bit, but you know what? I don't mind somebody with experience. I don't mind somebody who's been around five different, six different teams. And here's why. It'd be different if he was on a couple of teams that was out of the league for a long time or he hasn't called plays in a while. The fact that he's been on this many different teams and has been an offensive coordinator speaks to his ability to stick around in the NFL and speaks to his ability in terms of respect in league circles. You know, you might sit here and say, well, he got fired from this place, this place, and this place. I would rather say, yeah, that could be true, but more so, he kept getting hired, and he's still on an offensive coaching staff even today. Greg Olson has been around for a long time and has an impressive resume, whether you like it or not. 
he should deserve and warrant legitimate uh, consideration. He warrants legitimate consideration. The last candidate as of today whom the Bears have interviewed is Liam Cohen, the Kentucky football offensive coordinator. Now, he's a college guy. He's worked in the college space since 2010, but he was the offensive coordinator for the Rams in 2022. Ouch. Last year, they sucked. Sean McVay thought about retiring because they were that bad. (laughs) They were so bad last year that Sean McVay thought about walking away. I'm not impressed with him. Uh, You know, if the Bears go with him, uh, that signals what they usually do, which is hiring people with zero experience or bad experience and then trying to fit them into this square hole when they're a round peg. It's not going to work. So if I had to make a list right now, finalists or people they should seriously consider who I would not have a problem with, Clint Kubiak, Greg Olson, and Greg Roman, assuming adjusted field stays for him, all three of those guys would be worth taking a second look at if you're Chicago. I like all three of those candidates. And the Bears, to their credit, have interviewed good people. Now, the question is, will they choose the right one? Well, if they chose to keep Matt Eberflus, then probably not. But you never know. You never know what they're going to do. <laughs> I found it interesting, though. All of these different coordinators have been interviewed. The question is, who are the Bears going to take? And I think even more so, and this is something that I'm curious about, is how are they approaching the quarterback situation with these coordinators when they talk to them? How are they approaching it? Are they telling them that, they know who they're going to take. Are they telling them that uh, it's going to be Justin and, uh, you know, you'll see what happens with the rookie quarterback situation? I find it unbelievably bad for the Bears to be approaching it in this way. Brian Pohl said at the press conference at the end of the year that any offensive coordinator he hires should be able to cater to whatever the Bears' situation is going to be. They don't need to know, Pohl said, if the Bears will keep Justin Fields or draft Caleb Williams or Drake May. I find that irresponsible. And here's why. I've said this before. Why would an offensive coordinator want to come to Chicago when he may have to work with the project in Justin Fields and he may be under a lame duck head coach and might get fired in another year or two? There'd be much more stability for anybody interviewing for the Bears' job if they draft a rookie quarterback, no matter what, because maybe they do so good with the rookie and the team just collapses, they fire the head coach, they keep the OC and the quarterback together. That signals more job stability for anybody interested in this position. And that's probably the best-case scenario for anybody who's going to take this role is that they hope Caleb Williams gets drafted No matter what the end result is next year, as long as there's good things from Caleb Williams, they're going to be safe. That's the way it should be. That's the way I think is best. But the Bears are opting to play poker face and try to fake everybody into thinking that they may or may not keep Justin Fields, they may or may not draft somebody, and the offensive coordinator should just be okay with it. I'll tell you what. If If I'm an offensive coordinator in football, and I'm interviewing for the Bears position, and I don't know or nobody's telling me what they're going to do at quarterback, I'd walk out of the interview. I really would. I mean, what is this, some kind of joke? Sitting in the interview, I'm asking, hey, who's your quarterback going to be? Well, we're not really going to tell you, so you better be ready no matter what we do. That's BS. I need to know what's happening. I need to know the direction of my quarterback. 
<laughs> the most important piece of my offense, the most important piece of my scheme as an offensive coordinator. And you're telling me, oh, don't worry about it? Don't move. The Bears have to come to some sort of decision on what they're going to do with quarterback before they start interviewing OC candidates. The fact that they're doing it the other way around is wrong. It's going to bite them in the butt later. I'll tell you that right now. It's not a good move. I don't appreciate it. And I could understand to an extent Ryan pulls his logic. Well, they should get along with anybody. They're professionals. I get that. But don't you want to set somebody up for success, both the quarterback and the OC? Don't you want to set Caleb Williams up if he is drafted with a good offensive coordinator who's ready to work with him? Or vice versa, if you keep Justin Fields, don't you want to set him up with somebody who knows Justin Fields, knows his strengths, knows his weaknesses, wants to program a game plan that caters to his strengths? That, to me, seems like the logical option. But knowing how the Bears operate, logic's out the door. Got to worry about uh, other things besides logic. We'll see if they end up hiring. I feel like this is still going to be a bit of a drawn-out process. They're probably going to interview more people. And with the playoffs still going on, there are going to be issues that arise there, too. I mean, Kubiak, for example, he's coaching right now. I could accept a job while he's in the playoffs. So a lot of things are still going to have to be worked out, but I find it interesting that they've already interviewed six people and they still don't know who their quarterback's going to be. <laughs> no idea, apparently, at least publicly, no idea. Yet they're interviewing offensive coordinator candidates. That beats me. Then again, it beat me when they decided to retain Matt Eberflus. So why am I surprised? <laughs> oh, Chicago. Oh, the Bears, right? <laughs> Got a quote here, too, to end today. Caleb Williams, a draft insider, discussed Caleb Williams, why he'd be a perfect fit for Chicago, by the way. From the outside looking in, quote, I think he has a very dominant personality that will welcome the big market media. It takes a special kind of person to do that, especially in Chicago, a big media market. You have to have tough skin in a market like that. We've seen him play at USC. Oklahoma's a blue blood program. So he's been in these situations before. I think he has tough enough skin to where he's going to be able to take some of the criticism that faces him. Caleb Williams, as we've heard from many scouts, as we've heard from people on this show, former NFL executives, is a generational talent. And I'm going to continue to say up until draft time that he needs to be drafted by the Bears and he needs to be their future quarterback. And any offensive coordinator that the Bears hire better be ready to work with him and not cater to Justin Fields or walk into a situation that, as of right now, is a mystery to everybody involved. That's going to do it for us here today at Sports Talk Chicago. I appreciate everybody tuning in, everybody hanging out here with us. You can follow us all over at Sports Talk Chicago. Subscribe to the YouTube page. And a big thank you to all of our great radio and TV affiliates. want to name them out again. Our brand new one, Round Lake Beach, Illinois. So great to have them here with us. Affiliate number seven. You see there... Logo right up at the top of your screen, 98.3, The Life. We have our good friends as well, WKAN, 105.5, The Ticket, ACTV, JNTV, WJOB, and Cities 92.9, Talk FM. Seven great stations who air this program every week. Give it up for them and support them when our show airs on their stations throughout the week and weekend. For John Meadows, I'm John Zagluel. Until next time, so long.